I want to preach to you this morning on this text and under the title, Comfortable Alternatives. Comfortable Alternatives. I wonder if anybody here is facing some suffering in following Jesus and you're checking out some comfortable alternatives. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we study. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this text. We thank you for Paul and his example of facing suffering in Jerusalem, not going after comfortable alternatives of staying behind. And I pray, God, that we would use his own model as an inspiration for us today. God, speak to us today through this text. Help me to communicate your word faithfully. Open our ears and our eyes, our hearts, that we might have hearts of understanding. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. In early 2022, I will never forget the day sitting in Dr. Tortolani's office. When? 2020, what did I say? <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, did I tell you I went to the future? Yeah. There's flying cars in 2022. It's crazy. Just so much change is going to take place. No, in early 2020, I will never forget the day sitting in Dr. Tortolani's office when he uh, explained to me that my daughter, Jaden, that her curve in her spine had gone from about 30 degrees uh, only some months later to progress to 55 degree uh, curve in her, in her spine. And he explained that once the spine reaches this sort of curvature, especially at her age, that it won't stop curving. And that as she gets older, it's going to curve uh, until uh, she's uh, bent over. By the time she's in her 40s, um, she would have a lot of pain and she would be, uh, she would be severely bent over and that it would only continue through life. I asked my daughter for her permission, by the way, sharing her medical history with you guys today. She gave it to me. But I remember that day, and, and, uh, and that was when Dr. Tortolani said, we, we need to do surgery. And so he walked through the surgery with us, and it would be a significant open back surgery. And I remember thinking of the pain that she's going to have to go through, and she was only 14, 15 at the time, uh, thinking of the recovery um, that she would have to face, thinking of the risks that are entailed with this surgery. And so I asked him the question, I said, is there any other way that we could solve this problem without surgery? Well, there wasn't. And so on August 31st, 2020, I allowed a man to take a knife and cut open my daughter's back. Uh, yeah. Because there was no other way. You know, sometimes when we are following Jesus, we are faced with suffering that is going to ultimately be for our good, but unpleasant to go through for a season. I want to stand before you and say there's very, there are very few reasons a father would let a man take a knife uh, to his daughter. But for her good, you see, in following Jesus, however, so often, so often we say, you know what, I don't want to go through that kind of suffering. I don't want to face those difficult days of pain. And, and then we look for what, what I'm going to call today in my sermon, comfortable alternatives. Now, just to catch you up in the text, Paul here in the book of Acts just finished a conversation with the elders of the Ephesian church, and this conversation ends with tears. Uh, in verse 21, we see the pain as they say goodbye to Paul. They, they, it, it, the NIV puts it this way. I like the way the NIV translates it. After we had torn ourselves away from them. There is this love, there is this affection, but there's also this sense in which the Ephesian elders are clinging to Paul because you, you might remember they, they literally just heard Paul say 
that he's going to Jerusalem. He believes his life is going to be cut short. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to face suffering. They literally just heard him say that, that he believes that his life in and of itself has little value, only that he might finish the race that God has given him. And so he's going on, knowing that he is going to suffer for the sake of Jesus. They're clinging to him. He has to pull himself away. He gets on a ship. And then we're back to some travel narrative here in the book of Acts. Now, this section of Acts, I love. It's good for us as a church to, church to walk through this. And I, I, uh, am, I love, and it's also challenging, uh, to preach through this section of Acts because we are pounded week after week with this question, what is the value of my own life? We are pounded week after week with this question, why do I live? And what values are guiding me as I make decisions? We are pounded week after week with this model of the Apostle Paul who said, my life in and of itself is not precious, only that I might finish the race. Meaning, we are week after week brought uh, before this reality that we must live our lives blazing with the glory of Christ on mission to see souls saved. And that is where we actually find value in our lives. Now, we all want to live for something more, right? I think every human being has a sense in which we want to live for something greater, a greater purpose, a greater mission. We want to live for something more, more than the streets, more than just getting high, more than hanging out, more than materialistic gain, more than just pursuing and attaining a quiet and easy life. We all want to live for something greater. The problem is that most human beings won't. And that is because they opt for comfortable alternatives. Because true greatness requires suffering. In verses 1 through 3, we see this travel log. Paul hops on the ship and he goes to Kos then to Rhodes, then to Patera. He's heading, if you were to look at a map, he's heading toward Jerusalem. They find a ship going to Tyre. It's a cargo ship, and this is a long journey. When they arrive in Tyre, they get about a week uh, break from, from being at, at, at the high seas. As the ship unloads, there they hang out with the Christians. In verse 4, it says, Having sought out the disciples, we stayed with them for seven days. And through the Spirit, listen to this, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now let's work through this a little bit. This is warning number one. If I could outline this text, by the way, I would outline it with two warnings. Warning number one is in verses four through six, and warning number two is in verses seven through 11. Here's warning number one in verses four through six. Through the Spirit, it says... They were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, this brings up some questions. As Paul hears them warning him to not go, and he hops on, on a ship and he continues his, uh, his, his, his trek towards Jerusalem, he's not dissuaded, it brings up some questions, doesn't it? Meaning, is Paul in disobedience to God? Does God actually not want Paul to go to Jerusalem? Is Paul here a model of bravery or is he a model of foolishness? As some people put it, uh, some critics put it, that Paul had a martyr complex. That he's going to Jerusalem knowing that he's going to be suffering he, uh, and, and, and uh, they're encouraging him not to and he does it anyway. So the first question we have to ask looking at this text is, does the Holy Spirit tell Paul through these people that he should not go to Jerusalem? Well, my answer to that is no. Why? It's because God is not a God of confusion, and the Holy Spirit is not going to tell Paul one thing and tell somebody else an, a, another thing. 
So we already know in Acts that God has told Paul to go to Jerusalem, even though he's going to be suffering in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, Paul, it says that Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says that he is bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And later, in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus visits Paul, and Jesus himself says to Paul, Take courage, for you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem. Meaning, I wanted you to come here, even though you're suffering. And in the same way, Jesus says, you must also witness at Rome. So then what does through the Spirit mean when they are dissuading Paul from going to Jerusalem? Well, John Stott puts it like this. He says, perhaps Luke's statement here, Luke is the author, is a condensed way of saying that the warning was divine while the urging was human. What he's saying is, is, yes, there was a true sense of warning that these Christians got as they are praying with Paul through the Spirit, uh, a sense of understanding and knowledge that he is going to suffer in Jerusalem. But then their urging is, is all them. Their application or their interpretation of that warning is for Paul to not go through with it to pursue a comfortable alternative. And that is just to remain behind, to stay. You don't have to suffer in this way. That's warning number one. Warning number two is in verses seven through nine. Let's look at that. It says, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, a quick note on the main, point, uh, main characters in the book of Acts. Do you guys remember Philip? He was one of the seven what? Come on, somebody. Deacons. He was one of the first seven deacons. We saw that in Acts chapter 6. Philip was one of the seven. Uh, Philip also is the same Philip in Acts chapter 8 who leads the Ethiopian eunuch to the gospel. That's why he's called Philip the Evangelist. Here, some 15, 16 years later, we see that he now has four unmarried daughters. They're prophets. We're going to get back to that in a second. Philip, by the way, had a friend who was also a deacon named Stephen. Does anybody remember what happened to Stephen? Stephen was the first martyr. Who was it that oversaw the execution of Stephen? Saul, who became known as Paul, who Philip invites into his home for the night. I just want to just pause. This is getting away from the main point of my sermon, but I just want to pause for a quick moment and celebrate the gospel. Don't you understand that as Paul who oversaw the execution of Philip's friend Stephen. As Paul comes to Philip's town, Philip receives Paul into his home, not as an enemy, but a friend. Not as even a former executioner, but as a missionary of the gospel. Not as somebody who is seeking to destroy the church, but as someone who is seeking to build the church. And that's because Paul met Jesus. And when Paul met Jesus, he saw that at the cross, all of his sins are rolled away. And he found through the gospel of Jesus Christ a new heart and a new life. And Paul was transformed by God's grace. And 16 years later, he meets up again with Philip. And Philip says, brother, welcome. Welcome into my home. Oh, we want to see that kind of gospel change in our own lives and our relationships and our friendships and even with our enemies amen so so philip now has has four unmarried daughters now this is kind of getting back to the main point of my sermon his, his daughters are uh a, a pro, they're prophetesses i don't know what pro, plural of prophetesses they're prophesize 
uh, and uh, they, don't prophes- they don't prophesy. So I, I don't know why that is, uh, but I think the reason that he even says that, that they prophesy is to introduce this continuing theme of prophecy in Acts chapter 21 and to bring in another guy named Agabus, who is another prophet. So Agabus also swings by the house while Paul is there at Philip's, and Agabus delivers warning number two. Look at verses 10 and 11. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now that form of prophecy is very common for Old Testament prophets where they take a sign, a symbol of something, and then they use that sign as a warning, as a message from God for his people. And so here is the sign, it's a belt, and and he says the owner of this belt, which is Paul, is going to be bound and turned over to the Gentiles. Now Agabus was right. I think, I don't think Agabus was a false prophet, I think he was a, a true prophet, And he delivered a true message, which was a warning about what's going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. Paul is about to be arrested. He's about to be treated very poorly. There are going to be all kinds of murder plots out for his life. Paul is going to be turned over to the Gentiles, meaning he's going to Rome. He's going to end up, because of his trip to Jerusalem, he's going to end up spending years in jail in Rome. Now, again, the prophecy was correct. The urging was all human. Uh, The application of this warning is all human. So look at verse 12. It says, when they heard this, we, Luke says, I was part of this. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. When we heard that there is going to be suffering, we encouraged him toward comfortable alternatives. That's my interpretation of verse 12. Again, the prophecy was correct. You're going to face suffering. And by the way, that wasn't new news for the Apostle Paul. He knew that. He's already said he's going to face suffering in Jerusalem. But his friend's application was, was, was wrong. So, for example, if back in 2020, uh, Dr. Tortolani explained on that day that surgery is going to cause a lot of temporal suffering and pain. If I then were to say, Jaden, therefore, you should not get this surgery, that would be a wrong application of Dr. Tortolani's message. Does that make sense? God is saying there's going to be suffering. And for some reason, the way we think about this as human beings is that we are always supposed to avoid suffering. And so therefore, since there's going to be suffering in following Jesus, your friends are telling you, don't do it. Why would you do that? Because there's suffering. When it comes to suffering, we should avoid suffering at all costs, right? Wrong. Wrong. Because true greatness is found through suffering. You see, saints, well-meaning Christians today will encourage you not to follow Jesus in some areas of your life because following Jesus in those areas of your life is going to cause you some suffering. Paul has friends, Luke included, who are well-meaning, who love the Lord, who love Paul. And they are encouraging Paul to disobey God and instead pursue comfortable alternatives. We get to the climax of the passage then in verse 13. The climax meaning the big question, what happens? What's Paul going to do? Where's he going to go? Look at verse 13. 
Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This passage closes then in verse 15 with Paul heading out, heading straight to Jerusalem. Ends up in Jerusalem, staying in the home of Manasseh, one of the early disciples. And that's where we stopped our reading this morning. Again, if I could outline this passage, I would say verses 4 through 6 is warning number 1. Verses 7 through 11 is warning number 2. And then verses 12 through 16 is Paul saying, I'm going anyway. I'm heading to Jerusalem. Paul ignores their comfortable alternatives. Again, church, when it comes to following Jesus, which then at times means hardship, when suffering is required in our obedience to God, our response is often simply this, and that is to avoid it. To avoid suffering at all costs, even if that means disobeying God explicitly or subtly to give myself a little easier life. Our typical reaction to suffering in this world for Jesus is, it's not worth it. Enjoying life is more important. And we even have whole uh, uh, theologies that, that we twist and kind of build up to use for our, uh, for our case. We would say things like, well, we don't, need to, we don't need to live a costly kind of life for Jesus because we're saved by grace and not by works. And so therefore, I'm allowed to just sit back and take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry because it's not works that I've done, it's what Jesus has done for me. Well, amen, and you're twisting that theology. <laughs> but you see how we do this, though. You know, the unreligious folks, friends of yours, are going to say, like, yo, you're, you're doing too much. Like, why are you suffering so much for Jesus? Why are you doing that? And then sometimes your Christian friends will say the same thing. Like, you don't, you don't need to do all of that. You're saved by grace. Have fun. Enjoy this world. Don't suffer. Don't deny yourself. And so we get presented with comfortable alternatives. You see, I think this passage applies to us. And even as we're reading it, some of you might be thinking, well, I don't see how this applies to me because I'm not called to go to Jerusalem. I'm not called to go to this place where I might face suffering. I'm not called to go to a place where I might be persecuted for my faith. So I don't exactly know how this fits for my life. Well, I, I think this applies to every single Christian in this room. And here's how. Jesus called every one of us to suffer for his namesake. Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 put it this way. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Look, I think every day this applies to us. I think every day we are called in some fashion to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. And we, on a daily basis, are faced with comfortable alternatives to following Jesus. Let me just apply this in a couple different ways just to show you uh, uh, just a few analogies. We, there's probably a hundred ways that this might apply in this room, but just to show you a few. First would be work. How does this apply to our work life? Well, we are created to work. We're created to work an honest job, to contribute to society, to provide for ourselves. And the devil comes along and says, did God really say that you have to work? Aren't there comfortable alternatives? Like, can't we just kind of hang out and follow our daily desires and do on a daily basis what I want to do and depend on somebody else to provide for my needs? No, saints, we have to deny our comfortable alternatives yeah. 
and work. How does this apply to sex? Well, according to the Bible, we are to abstain from sex outside of a covenantal, complementary, male and female relationship marriage. Marriage is defined as a lifelong commitment, not just a temporal commitment. And the devil comes along and says, did God really say that? Like, aren't there comfortable alternatives? Couldn't you just have a little bit of fun? Just enjoy a little bit outside of the bounds that God has given us? Well, how does this apply to something like same-sex attraction? Well, same-sex attracted brothers and sisters are bombarded every day with this question, did God really say that? And sometimes my friends who are same-sex attracted seeking to live a life of holiness are grieved by the fact that this comes from within the church at times. Some of their brothers and sisters saying, did God really say that? You can have what you, what you desire. And they say, one, one, one young man said to me once, like, they don't know the sacrifice I make on a daily basis. And so we don't go after our comfortable alternatives, but we trust that intimacy with God is far better than temporal intimacy that this world provides. How does this apply to the church? Well, did God really say not to forsake the assembly? Even when you don't feel like it? Even when this, it's a cold morning and Netflix has a good show that you're binge watching? How about the, uh, how does this apply to the American dream? I apologize for stepping on your toes. <laughs> he had to go there. Well, the Bible calls us to do all things to the glory of God, that every decision we make ought to count for eternity. The American dream says that we should take life easy, enjoy as much material good as possible, eat, drink, and be merry. Did God really say to deny yourself? You see, we, we then ignore these comfortable alternatives as we, instead of pursuing the American dream, we pursue a life on mission, using our resources for the glory of God, yeah. for the salvation of souls, for the good of all people. How does this apply to prejudices? Racial and class favoritism. Did God really say not to show partiality? Oh, that's a comfortable alternative. But we are called to deny these comfortable alternatives and to go outside of our comfort zones and to love everybody, to show impartiality to everybody. This applies to everything else, by the way. Parenting, workplace, singleness, loving a spouse, reconciling with a friend, helping somebody in need, moving intentionally into a neighborhood, uh, moving overseas to evangelize an unreached people group. There are so many different applications for your life. I could go on, and I don't know exactly what it is right now for you, but you do. What does following Jesus require of you? And in which way are you saying, I want some comfortable alternatives. I don't want to have to suffer in this way in this world. You know, most Christians are willing to sacrifice for Jesus at some level. Most Christians that I know, if you were to ask them, are you willing to give your life for Jesus? Most Christians that I know would say yes. But here's the problem, is we typically think of that as some future big event when, you know, like uh, some, some group takes over America and, you know, they pull out swords and they're like, will you renounce Jesus? And you say, no, boom, head comes off, right? There's, there's this moment in time where, you, where you're just ready to not deny Jesus. But the problem is this, the problem is this is that we're called to deny him every day. Or I'm sorry, to deny him. We're called, come on somebody, help me, help me. We're called to deny ourselves every day for Jesus. And so often, 
we say, no, he's not worth it. Can I use just one example? I'm sorry for stepping on your toes. Pornography. Let me just use one example. I think, I think the, the challenge with something like pornography is it, it gives us a, an immediate sense of gratification. It's an immediate comfortable alternative uh, so that we might not have to suffer in a certain way. To look at pornography is not hard. It's very easy. To deny it is very difficult for some people. Just using this as an example. To deny it is, is to intentionally, willingly enter into momentary suffering for the sake of Jesus. And my concern is when we have this big idea of like, I'm, I'm willing to suffer for Jesus someday in some big way, yet every day I'm not willing to suffer for Jesus in this area of my life. Does that make sense? Now again, that doesn't apply to everybody in the room. I don't know what, what does. I'm just using these as examples and as analogies for the fact that we are daily called to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow after Jesus. And at the same time, like I've said, all, all, all humans want to live a life which is greater. We want to live a life which is better than the life that we're living. Yet the problem is this. These comfortable alternatives become cheap imitations. Why do we turn to a comfortable alternative? Because it gives me a sense of significance without having to go through the suffering which true significance actually requires of me. When I was in high school, I was a big fan of uh, Ralph Lauren Polo Sport Cologne. The problem is that that stuff cost $60 a bottle back in the day. I don't know what it cost today. It was a lot of money. And so I, 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 one day I was out of my Polo Sport that somebody had given me, and I'm like, how am I going to get some, some more Polo Sport? I don't have $60. Walmart had a knockoff brand, a, what, we, what you could call a cheap imitation, for about five bucks. There it is. I don't know why I've been spending all this money on Polo Sport, giving Ralph Lauren $60. Walmart sells it for five. So I bought it and uh, put it on. It smells okay. <laughs> it's somewhat reminiscent of Polo Sport. I can deal with this. By noon, it smells like spaghetti sauce. So for my 10th grade year in high school, because I also have this problem of like, if I buy something, I've got to use it. I can't waste it, I can't throw it out. I got through half the bottle. My whole 10th grade year, I smelled like spaghetti sauce. Why? It's because I was turning to cheap imitations. Come on, somebody. Here's my point. I, I, exactly, but I didn't want to pay the cost all right, for the real thing, and so I went after a cheap imitation, and it didn't produce, it did not deliver. Here's the thing, I did it, why? I did it for significance, for a sense of significance, so I could be wearing some polo sport, and so you smell me and think that I've got a $60 bottle of cologne on my neck. But no, it was, it was worthless, and that's, that's the point. We go after these comfortable alternatives because they provide cheap imitations. They give us a sense of significance without the cost of true significance, and that is only in found in picking up a cross daily and denying Jesus, willing to sacrifice for Jesus, willing to suffer for his name's sake. So, how do I live for something more? The answer is this. Stop going after the comfortable alternatives. Let me give you three applications as we close. Number one, do not be driven by man's fear, but be driven by love for God. 
Do not be driven by man's fear, but be driven by love for God. Now notice, I, I didn't say don't be driven by fear, but be driven by courage. I said don't be driven by fear, but be driven by love for God. There was this cartoon called Courage the Cowardly Dog. You know this. All right. Finally found an illustration that works for Isaiah. <laughs> In every episode, Courage um, fights off these, these monsters and demons and aliens and zombies, even though he's, he's actually kind of this fearful dog. So the whole point of the, the, the story of courage is that he does it not out of a sense of intrinsic bravery, but rather he does it out of love for his owners. And each episode ends with courage saying, oh, the things I do for love. There's something I think profoundly biblical about that idea. And that is this. It's not courage that drives out fear. But the Bible says love drives out fear. Why is it that we would have the courage to face the suffering that we need to face in following Jesus? Why is it that Paul was able to go to, 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 uh, to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome? We might look at Paul if you knew him and we'd be like, bro, you are so courageous. You are so brave. And I think Paul would say, I wouldn't put it that way. I'm not doing this because I was born courageous. I'm not doing this because I was born with a deep, intrinsic sense of bravery. I'm doing this because I love the name of Jesus Christ. You see, love is the basis of all of our courage, and so therefore love drives out fear. Look at Paul's response in verse 13. As they present these alternative, comfortable alternatives, Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? Meaning their emotion is hitting him. Their fear breaks his heart. And his response is, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die. Why? For the name of the Lord Jesus. Not because I'm courageous. Not because I'm brave. I'm willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Saints, are you driven in your sacrificial obedience out of love for the name of Jesus? Are you driven in your sacrificial uh, obedience? Let me turn this a little different way to make more sense. Out of love for the fame of the Lord Jesus, meaning that his name would be made known, that he would be lifted up and seen as glorious. Meaning when the world looks at your life and says, why are you suffering in this way? Is your response, well, because I, I want Jesus' name to be lifted up. Because I want Jesus' fame to be set ablaze in my life. That's how you find the courage that you need in order to face the suffering that you are going to face in following Jesus. It is through growing in your love for His fame, for His glory, for His name. Amen? Amen. Number two, second application. Do not be driven by man's wisdom, but be driven by awe in God. Do not be driven by man's wisdom, but be driven by awe in God. According to man's wisdom, there was no benefit for Paul going to Jerusalem. This is why his friends are like, bro, what are you doing? If you already know that you're going to suffer when you get there. And we've, we've got these two warnings on the road to Jerusalem. And, and we're told time and time again that you're going to suffer. Why are you doing it? Like, I can't think of a good reason for the greatest missionary of our day, the greatest church planter of our day, to intentionally go to a place 
where he knows he's going to suffer. According to man's wisdom, there is zero benefit in him following the Lord and going to Jerusalem. But God's wisdom, let me add to that, God's sovereign wisdom outweighs our own wisdom. Well, what's the point in Paul going to Jerusalem? Well, think of it, church. If he did not go, he wouldn't have testified to the entire city of Jerusalem when he gets there. If he did not go, he would not have proven that his love for Jesus is greater than even his love for his own life. If he did not go, he would have not ended up in house arrest in Rome and had the opportunity for a few years to preach the gospel to the entire city of Rome. If he did not go, he would have not been in chains and had the impetus in prison to write the letters Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Paul didn't know all of that in his decision to go to Jerusalem. He just knew God was calling him there. You see what I'm saying? Man's wisdom can't see all that God is doing. John Piper once put it this way. He says, he says, God is always doing a thousand things. You might only know of ten of them. Meaning, God doesn't need my advice on how he's going to accomplish his purposes through my suffering. Whatever God is calling you to, whatever daily suffering looks like in obedience to Jesus Christ, God is doing a thousand things in your life, in your suffering. Your suffering makes sense not to you, but to God. You just don't know why he's allowing you to go through this suffering right now. But you trust him anyway. We trust, we are driven not by man's wisdom, but by awe in God. Number three and finally, do not be driven by man's desires, but be driven by obedience to God. Do not be driven by man's desires, but be driven by obedience to God. Finally, his friends get it. In verse 14, it says, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up. And we said, here's where they they get it. And we said, let the will of the Lord be done. Notice they did not say, let our will be done. They didn't even say, let Paul's will be done. They said, let the will of the Lord be done. At the end of the day, we are driven not by man's will, not even by my own will, but by the will of the Lord. What has God revealed his will to be in your life? Follow it. Follow it. Where where has he revealed it? In his word. Let the will of the Lord be done. Some of you know that I have a cat at home. I don't like the cat very much. But he is, in his short life, already proving to make great sermon illustrations. This cat, which we call Twilight, uh, has everything that he can possibly want in our home. He has three floors of space for exploration. He has a dog to play with. He has plenty of pillows and blankets to purr in (laughs) and sleep in. He has shoestrings on the feet of human beings to play after, to run after. He's got warmth. He's got safety. He's got food. He's got a litter box. He's got everything. Would you believe that he wants more? Would you believe that every chance he gets, he's going to try to get out the doors? You know that phrase, curiosity killed the cat? I'm telling you, that's a whole other illustration. Look, he jumped in my my freezer, pulls out on my fridge. He jumped in the freezer as I was putting it back in. 
if I wasn't watching, I would have closed them in the fridge and we would have found a frozen kitty cat. I mean, that phrase comes from somewhere. And so I had the window just cracked open, just ever so slightly, about like this, our front windows. And all of a sudden we realized we can't find the cat. And I'm like, he can't get out the wind, that little crack. Well, he can. We realize he is not in the house. And so, you know, we're frantically looking for him. One of my kids is crying because they love the cat so much. And I'm just praying, God, please, if it's in your will, may he not come back. <laughs> and about 10 minutes later, we hear this pitiful meow. All right? The stupid cat is trying to get back in the windows, all right? He's in the flower box, trying to get back into the window, freaking out, afraid of the house next door. Meaning, he got a taste of what's outside. He says, I don't like it. I'm trying to get back in. But he couldn't get back in. So I, I grab this fearful cat, and I take him in the house, and, and, I, and I put him in, in, in the living room, and I say, you serious? Like, I had a little, I had a little chat with him. Like, if we're going to do this, we got to do this right. Where else are you going to go? He hasn't learned his lesson. There's this moment in Jesus' ministry when Jesus says some hard things and a whole bunch of disciples leave. And Jesus looks at his 12 disciples and he says, are you guys going to leave me as well? And so Peter thinks, and he's, he's thinking of all of his comfortable alternatives. Well, I could go back to fishing. I could maybe go to school. I could do something else. But what hope does the non-Christian have in this world that I don't have? What future does the wicked have after death? And so as he quickly thinks of his options, Peter responds, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, so often, church, we, we come to this point in suffering for Jesus, in our obedience to Jesus, and we, ha we ask this question, is there any other way around this? Is there any other way that I could be okay without having to follow Jesus in this area of my life? Well, every time that that's ever happened throughout biblical history, it's proven to be a disaster. Think of it for Israel. They said, is there any other way that we might worship God but also worship the gods of the world? Well, they lost the land and ended up in captivity. Jonah came along and asked the question, is there any way that I could go away from Nineveh? Well, seeking that comfortable alternative, he found himself in the belly of a great fish. Aaron asked the question, is there any other way that we could get out of this wilderness situation? And seeking a comfortable alternative... He allowed the people to build a golden calf. David wondered if there is any other way that he could sleep with Bathsheba and get away with it and it not be found out. And seeking some comfortable alternatives, he ended up a murderer and ashamed. Abraham wondered if there was any other way that he could take the promise that God had given him into his own hands and make sure that he had a son. And so he took Sarah's servant, Hagar, and seeking these comfortable alternatives, ended up ashamed. Adam, in the garden, wondered if there is any other way around this prohibition so that I might taste this fruit. And the devil comes along and he offers him a comfortable alternative. And he says, you know what? You know what? Did God really say that? You're just going to be like God if you eat this fruit. 
And so Adam and Eve took the fruit, and Adam took a bite and brought condemnation. The fruit of God's judgment, the cup of God's wrath on human beings. But there was another who said, is there any other way? If there is any other way that I could go about the redemption of human beings without having to drink this cup, then let it be. And he quickly resolved that question with what? A declaration. May your will be done. And Jesus stood up in that garden. And he willingly took the fruit of God's judgment, drank the cup of God's wrath for us and for our salvation. I'm just glad, church, that Jesus said, nevertheless, your will be done. I'm glad that Jesus didn't look for another way and determined to take some other path. I'm glad that Jesus didn't take comfortable alternatives in that moment, but rather he, true greatness, true significance, he went to his cross. He bore the shame for the glory that was set before him, which is your salvation, which is your redemption. And because Jesus went to his suffering, we can go to our suffering in following Jesus. I mean, may our prayer be, I just want to be more like Jesus. I just want to take up my cross daily. I just want to deny myself. I just want to follow Jesus, no matter the cost. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, that Jesus went to his suffering. We pray, God, that we would follow Christ, taking up our cross, go to our suffering in following Jesus, in obedience to Jesus, knowing that there is no other way, that all of the comfortable alternatives are pointless, ultimately shame us, but that true significance, true greatness, true life is found in suffering for Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.